Hello and welcome to Makers.dev episode 23. Uh, I am Chris. Christian is out this week, so I have a guest. This is Matt Swanson. Matt's a developer. He writes a lot about Ruby on Rails, uh, general maker as well. Uh, hi, Matt. How's it going? Hey, Chris. How's it going? It's going yeah, Chris and I are, are buddies from the uh, Indianapolis uh, software area. So uh, yeah, I'm a listener of the show and uh, I've been bugging Chris about when the episode is going to be out and uh, he... Uh, Judo reversed me and uh, is making me help him uh, record this week. <laughs> that's right. That's right. Um, yeah. So uh, I guess if you want to give a little bit of background about uh, who you are and what you do and uh, what kind of projects you have going on, that'd be that'd be good. Yep. So um, I'm a uh, you know software developer. I work at a consulting company in uh, Indianapolis, and I have one kind of main project that I've been working on for. Um, uh, close to two and a half, three years now, and it's a, a Rails app that tracks uh, analytics for oncology and rare disease drugs. So uh, when drugs launch to the market, uh, you know, we help uh, some analysts track a bunch of data about how they are getting covered in the market from all the different insurance companies. So that's kind of my uh, main day job. And then uh, I've got a couple uh, various side projects going on, uh, probably the most uh well, the one that's getting the most traction is uh, Boring Rails, which is a Rails um, blog and newsletter that I that I run that talks about uh, Ruby on Rails development and kind of building things in the uh, most uh, boring way possible. But it's sort of a tongue in cheek. Great. Um, so what? Uh, let's see. Uh, I guess we could uh, start with you. Uh, so what have you uh, been up to, say, this last week? That's usually what Christian and I do. And uh, what kind of stuff yep. uh, do you have coming up? What kind of decisions are you making? Well, uh, it's basically the time of uh, vacations and uh, normally spring break, but I think everyone is just ready for a little bit of a break. So, yeah, I was off last week, and that kind of creates the situation where the week before vacation uh, is really busy because I'm trying to get things set up. Um, I have a team of uh, three people, and, uh, you know, there's myself, there's a, another kind of senior developer, and then we have a, an apprentice who's a, sort of a career um changer uh, person. So uh, making sure that I get them set up when I'm out for a week, being able to uh, keep working and have stuff to do that, uh, you know, makes uh, week N minus one uh, super busy. Then there's vacation and uh, try not to like do anything. And then you come back, which is this week, and uh, you sort of play catch up. So um, it's been a, a pretty crazy uh, couple of weeks, um, you know, with a uh, vacation in the middle. But yeah, so we're we're working on um, a couple of big features for for that project. Um, the kind of most interesting thing, uh, maybe for us to chat about, is um, we're we're trying to figure out uh, right now the main deliverable of this software is this massive massive Excel file. So people are using a web application to do all the data entry and uh, do you know searches and filtering and uh, analyzing the data. But then the output is this big Excel file that gets sent to the drug companies for their um, their their internal teams to use. And so from their perspective, it's really great because instead of having to go to hundreds of different websites for all the different insurance companies, find policies for their drug, read through them, figure out. Uh, how it all compares to the other ones. They just get this kind of um, nice Excel file that has everything sort of already pulled out into different different fields. And uh, so that's great for them. It's so, sort of not so great for the people that have to, uh, you know, write software that's, uh, you know, interfacing with Excel and also the people uh, that are doing the analysis have to kind of sometimes massage things into special formats for Excel. So we've actually been We've been working on figuring out if we should build a web-based like dashboard um, instead of the Excel file, and uh, you know the the programmer in me and the like engineer is like yes for <laughs> sure this would be way better we can uh, it'll be so much faster to iterate on these things uh, it'll it'll look a lot nicer uh, anyone can access it we can start doing a bunch of neat stuff but uh, then the the reality of the business is uh, no they kind of like getting uh, this thing emailed to them every month and there's almost like a consulting, uh, nature to it. So, uh, saying, oh yeah, just kind of like log into your client dashboard, uh, sort of loses the, the in-person touch point that, that the company has where 
you know, they send them a, you know, a personal email with this Excel file and it, uh, you know, they pass this Excel file around versus like, oh yeah, it's like yet another web portal that nobody uh, looks at. Yeah. Yeah. This is something I run into all the time too. It's kind of like build versus buy for companies, right? Um, yeah. Do you, do you build a fancy new thing or do you stick with what you have? Like, you know, stick with that kind of boring, but works uh, solution. Um, do the people, uh, have your, your customers or I guess has the end users expressed any interest in having it be a dashboard or do they just really kind of like the Excel file? Well, so that's, that's what we're trying to figure out right now. So we've been doing customer interviews and trying to talk to them. Um, you can imagine it's sort of uh, hard to get uh, sort of like mid and higher up uh, account managers at these big, you know, Fortune 100, Fortune 500, like uh, pharmaceutical companies to like get on the phone. And then also, I don't know, like we've been having uh, we've been having some success with the customer interviews, but I think it's really difficult to talk at like you have to go up and down the stack so much to talk about like. Yeah, we're interested in knowing like what specific fields uh, you maybe want to know because we want to make sure we don't back ourselves into a corner where uh, we like are removing data that they really want or like what kind of charts do they want. But then also like zoom up 30,000 feet to say like, do you even want this to be an Excel file that we email to you? Do you want this to be, uh, you know, a dashboard? And then, uh, you know, if, if they're sort of more technical leaning in the sale, oh, we've got this, we've got our own internal system. That'd be great if we could like hook up that data too. And that's a whole nother, uh, that's a whole nother mess. But kind of the one interesting thing that we found out and we're just getting started on these um, customer interviews, but the, the one thing that we found out from one of the first interviews was that actually one of the, the really great experiences that they have is um, that sometimes they actually get sent PowerPoint slides that have the data and like a chart that the app could generate like in the slide. Mm -hmm. uh, so we're like, oh, that's cool. Like, um, and when we were sort of prototyping the dashboards, we were thinking about like, yeah, we need to make sure that if any graphs or charts can be like downloadable into like, uh, you know, an image instead of just like a JavaScript thing on the page. Uh, but uh, unfortunately, what we actually found out is what they really like is the fact that the slides are already in their company template and that they can just copy paste the actual slide from like one PowerPoint window to the other PowerPoint window. So now it's like, oh, should we be generating like programmatic PowerPoint slides? And it, it just suddenly is like, yeah. uh, oh, I thought we were, we were trying to get away from like having uh, Microsoft Office as our, uh, you know, uh, target platform here. So yeah, it's, uh, it'll, it'll be interesting to see what shakes out and maybe there's a world where, where there's both and, uh, yeah, it's been challenging trying to find the balance between if this software that we're writing should be like a tool for the people running the like productized consulting business to use, or if it should be like a SaaS offering that, you know, is sort of automating the deliverables. And uh, I think right now we're definitely in the like, this is a helpful tool to help people like collect the data. And then ultimately they're responsible for at the end of the month, kind of dumping the data out and then, uh, you know, sending it off. Yeah. Yeah. That's, it's super tricky when the, like the person purchasing your, your, in this case, your consulting time is not the same people using the software. And it's probably not even the same people. Like if this productized consulting sends it to a director or something, then they're probably not making a presentation. They're probably sending it to their reports, you know, like their underlings yeah. to, to make a presentation out of it. So you have like at least three, maybe four layers of indirection. Um, so that's, that's pretty tricky. Yeah. It's kind of like we're trying and there's different strategies, right? Like there's, uh, from our client's perspective, like they want to be like the, you know, consulting partner for these companies. And a lot of the value that they provide is like, uh, analysis of the data and like more, um, uh, more qualitative, um, data about like, yeah, you should expect, uh, you know, six months after your FDA approved, you need to be covered by this many payers or, you know, uh, blue cross blue shield, like always, you know, needs this particular form to be filled out, make sure you're, you're doing that, you know, before, before it launches. And then on the other hand, there's another part of the business, which is really just like massaging the data that exists like publicly on the internet into a somewhat standardized uh, form. And so there's plenty of challenges on both sides and, uh, you know, lots of work and, uh, you know, small team and, and small company. So we have to try to be, uh, making smart decisions about what we spend time on. Yeah. It sounds like, um, 
it, it sounds like generally that if the deliverable from the productized service to the executives is going well, then you may need to maybe more prudent to focus on the the other side, the uh, collecting information and getting it ready for the productized service to sell, which is probably not what the developer in you wants to do. But yeah. well, yeah, and um, you know, I want to I want to help them be successful, and it's it's just it, things get a lot more complicated and sort of take longer when you're talking about like business processes and like how are we positioning our company and what are we selling and what are the deliverables um, and you know all this is also happening within the lens of like an ongoing service that is running right so even if we want to switch the deliverable unless we can like flip a switch and switch all clients at the same time there's going to need to be this transitionary period where some people are still getting excel files some people are on the dashboard and so we have to like have both code pass running and um so it's it's definitely a tricky um a tricky thing to make the experience uh you know as seamless as possible yeah yeah all right interesting um cool so that's about your day job how about uh boring rails you want to talk about that and uh what your challenges are, what you're thinking about doing with that? Yeah, so um, I started this um, this kind of side project, uh, um, this batch of side projects a few years ago, and um, I had I had been doing kind of the whole um, you know build your own apps indie hacker light type thing before, and I had never really gotten anything off the ground. Um, so I had kind of in uh, 2019, I had sort of deliberately said that like, if I'm gonna work on side project stuff, I, sh I should be trying to build um, assets. And uh, that didn't necessarily have to be like generating uh, money. It could be um, just something that if I put time in, uh, I can eventually like see it sort of grow on its own a little bit. So actually the first thing I did in that sort of uh, new, new spirit was um, some analytics sites that I built for uh, these um, sort of alternative uh, football leagues. So, you know, the NFL has tons of sites, uh, tons of tools, and, you know, there's uh, lots of content and, um, and analytics stuff already. But uh, there are a couple, well, at the time there were, all, the, all these leagues have uh, since been sort of ravished by uh, the, <laughs> yeah. uh, the pandemic. But, uh, yeah, there was, um, there was a couple new sort of minor leagues that were starting up, and then there's, like, the Canadian Football League, which is – um, in some ways, very similar to the NFL, but just slightly different. And so, uh, yeah, I started building uh, basically just kind of like clones of what was the industry standard for the NFL, but trying to port them over to these smaller leagues that, you know, there was basically less competition. So uh, I built some, uh, you know, projection models for Canadian football. And then there was a new league that started that was the uh, Alliance of American Football, which was um, kind of a reboot of the XFL, but then the XFL itself got rebooted. It's all very complicated, and <laughs> none of these things end up succeeding because, uh, you know, the NFL is basically like a huge, uh, massive, like, uh, behemoth, uh, you know, monopoly on yeah. on everything. But, yeah, so, so that was kind of my first foray into, like, the – I guess I'll call it, like, the intersection of, like, development and, like, content production – uh, so the idea was that I could make, I could write some code to like um, generate these analytics, and then I would spend some time getting it set up the first season. But then subsequent seasons, it kind of just like runs, and you know, week to week, I'm not, I'm not having to write uh, more code. It's just pulling in, you know, that week's data and crunching the numbers and and doing that. So that that actually was going um, pretty well, and I ended up before the the league ended up uh, shutting down in the middle of its first season. Um, yeah, I had built like a Twitter account that was sort of like, uh, the, um, kind of like the ESPN of this small league. I had built that up to around 4,000 Twitter followers and overall uh, for the lifetime of the project, I ended up doing like a million, uh, page views. Um, and I had started kind of, uh, recruiting a team of writers to write stuff. There's lots of people that are trying to break into the like fantasy football right. industry and, these are like really attractive jobs, like, you know, be like a sports writer, but um, there's really very few opportunities and kind of uh, for better or worse, it's sort of in the, the journalism field where you're kind of expected to do like free, uh, free work yeah. to get experience. And then, uh, you know, hopefully down the line, you can turn that into uh, paid work. But 
um, I didn't have any money to pay anybody anyways. Uh, so it, it worked out nicely. And so I, at, at the peak of that, I had uh, six different people that were submitting like weekly, um, weekly articles to the site. Um, it was, it was actually pretty cool. Uh, even though the league shut down, like one of the guys was like a high school student. Like I didn't, didn't really know. He was just like, Hey, I'll write this article. And I was like, okay, if you want to write it, I'll, right. I'll post it. And uh, he ended up like, um, using that to like get into like a journalism program in school. And it, it was kind of like a really good, um, experience. And then he, uh, kind of turn that into like uh, a way to make contacts at uh, like a local football team that was uh, near him and kind of got like a press pass and all that stuff. So uh, that was kind of uh, going well. And I was, I was really liking that because uh, it was, it was fun and uh, it was growing well. And then uh, of course the league ended up, uh, it's kind of an interesting story if anyone wants to look it up, but uh, basically the, one of the main investors of the league, like, uh, was sort of running some kind of fraud scheme oh. that had to do with cryptocurrency and uh, didn't have all the money that they had pledged. So the league uh, ran out of money to you know pay the players and and uh, pay the bills. And so it basically uh, shut down uh, right before the uh, the playoffs. That's a, that's a bummer. <laughs> yeah. So I was like, well, this kind of sucks. Um, and then the next kind of season, uh, I was like, well, I've got, I've got this other, there's the XFLs coming back and then there's the Canadian football league. Uh, and then, uh, COVID happens and the Canadian football league actually canceled their entire season. And they just announced that they're sort of delaying this current season, um, you know, a couple months. So we'll see, we'll see what happens. A lot of these smaller leagues are really dependent on ticket sales. Um, cause it's more like a local entertainment um, event thing instead of like the NFL where you get these huge TV deals and you have, uh, you know, all this money uh, flowing into it where they can sort of, they, they would prefer to play with fans, but they can afford to uh, just play, you know, with, with empty stadiums, uh, kind of like your, you know, your minor league, you know, baseball team. If nobody is going for, you know, uh, free bobblehead day, like there's no money uh, and it's not worth it. Right. That's interesting. Um, I love how you you took something that was working for the NFL, uh, like a you know working for the big times, and you kind of brought it to these more niche uh, places. Um, I think there's lots of places where, like indie hackers, could do that too. Um, you know, like take something that is working pretty well, and you know don't clone it, but sort of replicate it in in a different area in a different niche. Um, uh, yeah, that, that's really neat. Um, you said you grew your the Twitter account to about four thousand followers. Uh, did you have any learnings from that? Um, I know your current Twitter account is, is pretty high too, like three thousand or something. Um, what what were your biggest uh, what biggest things you learned from doing those things? Well, the the one <clears throat> it's almost a negative that I learned was that uh, after after your Twitter account gets like uh, I don't know a, a few thousand followers, like Twitter becomes like insanely more uh, addictive. Yeah. Because basically everything you post starts to get like at least a little bit of interaction. Uh, and so it's really easy to just like post and then refresh. And then like every time you come back, you have like, oh, five notifications. And then you go look at the notifications and then, you know, reply to somebody. And then it just like, it creates this loop. And um, when, when I just had kind of my own personal account and was just, you know, tweeting out, you know, what, what I had for lunch or, uh, you know, what was annoying me, like sometimes like nobody answers you, nobody's sending you messages. Um, but once you start, once you start like, um, getting a little bit more of a following, then people start like asking you questions unprompted. And, uh, you know, you, you can always be trying to get bigger and, uh, you, you sort of see those like feedback loops, uh, start working. Uh, so that was like a negative thing. Um, maybe the positive thing was just like that. I kind of realized that like, there's a lot of people on Twitter and like, there's a lot of people that just like post absolute like crap content. Like it's just nothing they're just like, uh, you know, shouting into the proverbial void. And, uh, even, even people that are like doing stuff, it's like, oh, I'm just going to like automatically retweet every like blog post that I write. So the thing that, the, the things that I was doing for, uh, you know, this football account was like, um, you know, I would, I would sign up for the like media list and get like a PDF with the like injury, injury report from each team. And so I would just like open that PDF and then like find the, uh, you know, the, the skill position players, like, oh, if the quarterback was out and then like, okay, then turn that into a tweet. And instead of just like tweeting the PDF uh, or like, you know, it, it, the tweet is really just like, hey, practice report for this team, like this quarterback is out. 
And so that, that was like, oh, this is content that uh, you, you can't really get outside of this like PDF, uh, but now it's like, you know, properly formatted for, uh, for the, uh, the Twitter, um, the, the Twitter, uh, context. Yeah. That's interesting. Uh, that's sort of similar to what you were doing. What were you talking about at your job where you're taking, uh, all this information all over the web for these drug, uh, trials and stuff, and you have to put it into tweetable content for the VP or whatever. It's interesting. Yeah. And it's kind of, it's kind of nice too. The other thing you can do is like, you can follow bigger bigger accounts and just figure out like what they do and then sort of apply it in your case. So like sometimes I would like, you know, like live tweet, uh, like a game that was happening and, and, uh, you know, or, Oh, just like turn on like a screen recorder and like capture like little video clips of, you know, like every touchdown. And there's definitely tons of, there's tons of things that you'll start picking up once you start making content of like, Oh, like I can see that like, actually like ESPN, you know, they must have some template because every time like someone scores a touchdown, like, you know, they automatically generate this, you know, graphic and, uh, you know, post in this, this format. And, oh, it's really just like, you know, reading from like the box score API. And suddenly you're like, oh, well, I can like connect to this box score API and I can, I can do some of that. So I don't know. It was kind of just my first foray into like intentionally trying to like grow a Twitter account. And uh, yeah, it was cool. It, it, the, probably the coolest thing was like when you'd get uh, these like super huge, like million follower uh, accounts of people that are like literally on ESPN. They're like, oh, like I'm watching this minor league football. And it's like, oh, well, like I'm suddenly the the like the leading, you know, uh, account for, for this thing because it's so small and nobody else has uh, spent the time on it. So, yeah, it was like uh, Matthew Barry, who's like the big ESPN fantasy football, you know, has like written books and has you know, 2 million Twitter followers. It's like, oh, like, I don't know who this person is or like what this team is, but like it was really helpful. And I was like, oh, it's like just me, a person. Yeah, uh, that's really neat. Oh, my uh, camera does this thing where it shuts off after 30 minutes unless I run a command. Uh, by the way, if your camera does that, you can run gphoto2 dash dash summary and it will not shut off anymore. <laughs> so that's what I just did. All right. <laughs> Um, cool. Uh, sounds like something Christian would, uh, would, uh, you know, make a YouTube video about, yeah, you know, exactly, how, to, exactly. how to shut off your camera. So. Well, we thought, so it is a technical aside. So we have the same cameras, a Canon, uh, M50, um, a lot of still cameras, they have this requirement that they can only record for 30 minutes on video, um, before they shut off. Otherwise they have to be taxed as video cameras. <laughs> so there's no technical reason. Ah. It's like a tax reason. And this so, is like a Nathan for you. Plot. Yeah, exactly. Um, so there is software that will co like connect to your camera and make it think that it's connected the whole time and then it won't shut off. <laughs> so that's what Gphoto 2 does. Is that like, I think there's something that's like a battery that's like a charger that like go, you know, it's like a fake battery or something. So I have that too. Yeah. So I have a fake battery that plugs in and then I never lose power because I don't need a battery because it's plugged into the, the, the wall now. Um, but it'll still shut off after 30 minutes unless I run the command. So. Uh, yeah, fun tactic. Well, now that your tactic. camera's back, um, I want to hear about your Kaggle competition. Sure. So, Kaggle, uh, last week I think I was in seventh place. Uh, this week I'm in first place, which is awesome. Um, I Now I'm in second place, actually. They just beat me about an hour ago. The, uh, the team behind uh. me, they were in first for a long time, way ahead of everyone. Um, they're now a team of four people. Like, they just brought on two more people. And so when you bring on people into your team, you basically combine your models and you almost always get better. Yeah. And so, uh, they pulled just ahead of me. Um, and the two of us are fairly far uh, ahead of the next, the third place. And so that feels pretty good. Um, there's still 25 days left and I suspect that it, I'll probably be in the top 10 if I don't get any better, but I, I'll probably be like 10th. So I have to keep going if, if I want to stay, uh, uh, stay in, on top. Yeah. Can you remind me like what the like actual challenge is? Yeah, sure. So um, it's indoor location and positioning. Um, this is they basically had a bunch of volunteers go around shopping malls and hold out their Android phone with a specific app on it. And it collected Wi-Fi mm -hmm. data as well as accelerometer, gyroscope, uh, magnetometer, and rotation data. Um, and they walk around these set paths on the on throughout the shopping mall. Um, and then, so they have all this ground truth, truth data. So they know where they are because they tap on, like, I'm in front of this store or whatever as they walk around. And then uh, they hold out uh, 10,000 data points, and you have to basically predict those 
where they were for those 10,000 data points. Um, yeah, so it's uh, it's run by Microsoft Research. So this is just a research thing, but you can imagine why some of this yeah. data might be valuable. Like, you know, if stores know where people are in their store, um, that can help them and stuff. And the reason it was interesting to me is because this is kind of what I did for a job for a long time. Um, we didn't do it in, right, right. Yeah, we didn't do it in uh, malls. We did it in healthcare, but um, yeah, tracking uh, equipment and beds and whatnot. Yep, exactly. Uh, yeah, so it's validating that something I did in the past is sort of useful. Um, I didn't use that much of the information I had in the past, uh, although I did. So I knew not to waste very much time on Wi-Fi. <laughs> a lot of people are spending a oh. lot of time on Wi-Fi data, and I was like, no, you're never going to get better then you know, maybe five meters with Wi-Fi. So, yeah, um, it's all. So I, I've never done uh, one of these uh, competitions, but for some reason I have it in my brain that like something that happens fairly often is that um, as you get closer to the deadline, like the teams start combining, like yep. the, the top two will just say like, uh, it's kind of like a hedge, right? Like, hey, if we just like combine, then we can like uh, guarantee that, you know, one of us wins the, the top prize or, um how does that how does that work is that um yeah. do you like lose your do you lose your place or can like you still have like oh we're gonna like i'm thinking in like in like a poker tournament right like people like buy action of each other so uh, uh you know if you're a good poker player you get like four of your poker player friends and you say like we'll each give each other like a quarter of our winnings is that kind of what happens or is it more like actually we're just joining your team and then like the old one sort of falls off the leaderboard yeah it's the second one so um you you join together and then all of your submissions are joined as well so like this last team they had like 100 each say and when they all join now they have like 350 or something as their count mm -hmm. um, and so basically whatever the best was of the whole team uh that becomes the best of the new team um and then, yeah, and so, and that's exactly what happened. So I was actually asked to join a team too. I, I said, I kind of want to figure out, this is my first Kaggle competition. So I was like, I want to see how far I get. And then I realized that people yeah. do this. Like basically people, you start seeing groups of people join together um, and increase their score quite a bit usually when they do that, because they, then you basically take the best, you know, four models that you each have and combine them all. And you usually jump ahead a little bit. Um, yeah. So I'm, if I want to try to be first, I have work to do. To yeah, if you're if you're optimizing your payout, then maybe that's the the strategy. But if you're just uh, kind of doing it for for fun or an experiment, then uh, probably not worth uh, uh, having to like integrate code or like oh now I have to like meet with these people every day to like right. uh, go over the new findings or whatever. Yeah, exactly. And this is, I mean, the top prize for this is five thousand dollars. You know, which is not nothing, but it's it's also not like some of the top prizes are like thirty thousand dollars. So if the top prize right, was that like high, the, the Netflix, the Netflix yeah, million dollars, like, oh, like a million dollars. And suddenly it's like, oh yeah, all the top 10 teams just like decided to pool together. Yeah. So I would, right. I would probably do that if it was that substantial. Um, uh, so yeah, I mean, yeah, it's been really neat. I've had to do, this competition is neat because there's, there's images, there's recurrent data, there's, um, there's just regular tabular data. There's, uh, like pre and post processing. So it's not just all AI. So there's just lots of stuff. And since I'm sort of relearning all this AI stuff, um, it's been a really good co competition to like get me back into all of that stuff. Cause there's just all the different parts that you might think to do. You can do so. Yeah. All, all the, like the AI and the machine learning stuff, it's kind of interesting to me. Um, but it feels like one of those things, and, and maybe you have a better sense of this, like it feels like it's a very academic discipline. Um, which I think sometimes it, it seems like a lot more uh, impenetrable than it, than it really is, uh, especially when it comes to software. Like, and I don't know why, I think uh, I have this like bias of like, when I see like machine learning papers and stuff, it's like, oh, like this is like really complicated um, math. And then uh, it's like, well, actually it's just like the, the nomenclature, right? Or like the way that we use like, you know, symbolic math is hard to understand. But if you just said like, here's pseudocode, it's like, oh, this is like totally understandable. So I think about that. And then I think about the fact that a lot of like software research in academia is like mostly junk and uh, not really relevant. Like, you know, in other fields, you'd say like, oh yeah, if someone has like a PhD and like, you know, in, in the subject that like, maybe they're like an expert, but like, I don't know, I, I haven't worked with a lot of like computer science PhDs, but like, any of the people that I sort of look up to as like writing great software or not like it's almost the opposite. It's almost like people that are like, Oh, I'm like a high school dropout, but I've been like building 
you know, building software. So I'm, I'm curious how much of that is like, uh, this sort of fake, uh, difficulty of like, it's hard to like understand the academic paper, but the concepts are actually sort of trivial. Yeah. You, you hit on a bunch of different points, um, which are all pretty good. Um, so one is, yeah. So a lot of PhDs, like they have to get published. And so in order to get published, you have to sound very smart <laughs> to other people. Um, and you have to, uh, provide results on publishable results on data sets that people already know about. Um, and so, and those two things combined, basically you have, you are solving problems that are really forced. So you're like trying to solve the specific problem data set, which has already been solved a hundred times, but you're trying to do it a little better. Um, and you have to use the most complicated math you can in order to show that you understand what you're talking about. Um, yeah. and so those two things combined definitely make it so that most papers are like, unless you really know the math that you just can't understand it. Um, a really good example is so fast.ai, um, by Jeremy Howard. He doesn't do this. He goes with code and he tries to explain papers, um, some of the papers that they use to make the results, you know, work, uh, in code. And so he'll, he'll say, okay, here's this paper. You should, you know, read the introduction read the conclusion, whatever, look at all this math and then realize it is this one line of code. (laughs) Like this whole paper means you should do this one thing. And, and that's that. So, um, so yeah, that's exactly right. Like, uh, PhDs try to push the state of the art by understanding, you know, like the fundamental things going on, but really it's like one line of code that you change um, and then it works. Um, so yeah, in terms of actual software creation, like having a PhD is, is probably not great. It's kind of like the second, you know, like all the people who read the PhDs paper and then understand it and then write the libraries that, that everyone else can use that. That's yeah. Yeah, because I know I know you were at least thinking about like, oh, do you want to go do like a master's program or something? And um, yeah, I don't know. Did you ever uh, come to a conclusion on that of like, you know, it, it wasn't going to be help- as helpful as just like uh, taking, you know, the 40 hours you would be studying and doing 40 hours of, of coding or did that factor into the analysis? Yeah, so I'm still not sure. Um, I actually applied for a master's. I haven't heard back from yet. Um, so I get, you know, I'll just wait to see if I get in and then I'll have to make a decision. Yeah. Um the reason I was interested in masters is because now you can do masters online. Um, it's not very expensive and you go at your own pace. So like I, you know, I could take three years and just do it half time. Um, mm-hmm. and it basically what it would, I, I could more or less get the same content online, but it would force me to do it <laughs> is one reason. Yeah. Um, like I, I look back at what I did in school and the classes, like you go really deep and you're forced to learn it if you want a good grade. And, um, I understand stuff, you know, like, like I, I had a pretty good time in school, like understanding stuff from classes. Um, so some people have really bad experience. Um, I had a particularly good yeah. one. And so like, I think I would, you know, pretty more deeply understand the stuff. And but my goal would be to be able to read the research papers and, you know, break down the whole thing into one line of code, you know, <laughs> like that is kind of the goal with that. Um, I don't think it would help me career-wise necessarily, unless I want to go get a job in like a big tech company doing AI stuff, which I don't think I want to do. I, I, you know, I don't know, but, um, but it's more like, you know, for, for 10 grand and half time for three years, and then I get a master's and something that I think is really interesting. Um, that's appealing. And it's probably not, it's not that drastically different than like, you know, the most, you know, the nicest like paid uh, you know, course on, on it or something. And then you get some, you know, credentialing out of it. Um, yeah. It's interesting. Like I, I often think about like, oh yeah, if I could just like go back to school and like do my like degree over again, I'd be like, wow, this would be like so easy. Yeah. Especially, especially like the software stuff. Cause it's like, like, I, I just remember like when I was in undergrad, like, you know, uh, toiling away at these programs to like do this, like the most basic stuff. And I was just like, oh, like I could probably do this like way, way better now. And sometimes you just have these like weird, like, Oh, like what if you just like re-enrolled in school and like just pretended that you were, uh, you know, uh, Oh, I'm, I'm, I'm a 20 year old as well. Like, uh, <laughs> right. like, Oh, I have some money. I can just like rent a cheap college campus and just like, you know, pretend and just go through school for four more years again. Yeah. And then, uh, yeah, I mean, yeah. <laughs> seems like the plot of like a, a teen comedy. Yeah. Or, or you know, Van Wilder, I think was one where he stayed in yeah. school for eight years or something. Yeah. Um, yeah. Uh, yeah. So we'll see. Um, I, I want to continue. So I, so I want to still do SAS stuff. Um, but I also want to continue learning about the AI stuff. Um, some of it is I want to 
I, I don't think AI is going to be, you know, the savior of everything. Um, but I do think it's really, really interesting and we can now start solving problems that were impossible before. And so I just think that's really interesting. And so I wanted to learn more about like the frontiers of that. Um, and that's really hard yeah. to do unless you understand the math. So. I think there's definitely a lot of interesting opportunities too. And it, it's like, it's kind of, it, it's sort of like a little bit of a moat as well. Like you could probably build a, a product that has like some kind of like state of the art, like machine learning, but then like the rest of it is like pretty basic, you know, like crud stuff, but it would be like way better than the other stuff that doesn't have that like extra, you know, secret sauce. And it's not exactly like, oh yeah. And just like a weekend I can build, you know, something like that. Um, yeah, I mean, like when I think about the work that I'm, that I'm doing, there's all kinds of problems like that. I mean, of like, oh, take this arbitrary web page and like detective, detective, like there's been a change to the policy. Right. And it's like, oh, well, okay. The naive thing is like, well, you know, like you could MD five, the HTML or something and like, see if that changed or like, uh, check the text, but, uh, it's not going to get you very good results, but I'm sure that if you had a little bit more knowledge about like, how can I pull out like the, like do like a topic, you know, uh, analyzer or something on the text and then like count the number of like distinct keywords or something. And then compare that, it'd be like, oh, this is like night and day better, but it's not actually that hard or any, anything like too onerous. But then suddenly you've got like the world's best, like, you know, uh, service that will send you an email when a website uh, changes and you've eliminated like 90% of the like false positives. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's funny how often uh, that is true. Like it's using a lot of these libraries, like the hard part is in figuring the stuff out. And a lot of the hard part is in generating the data set and stuff. Once you do that, it's like relatively easy. Like, like the actual modeling and training is relatively easy compared to all the rest of that stuff. Um, so yeah, that's really interesting. Uh, that gets into your hot take idea. Do you want to talk about that? Uh, sure. You uh, you told me that you had an idea that you wanted a hot take on, and so I said uh, that you could present it, and I would see what I said. So yeah. So um, I uh, and I think you are uh, as well. Like watch lots of uh, YouTube videos, and something that uh, I think is fairly common knowledge about people that make YouTube videos is like the thumbnail and the sort of title of the video is like almost everything, uh, at least for a certain subset of like, uh, you know, getting, getting, uh, popular, right. I mean, if you're doing YouTube for, uh, some other reason than, uh, a, what is wrong with you and B, uh, you know, don't, don't, you know, don't care about like a clickbaity, uh, thumbnail, but that's kind of like the name of the game. And so I was curious, I know that there are tools that do like AI powered, like headline, um, uh, writing. I think there was, I forget what it was called. It was like, Copy, copy lime or lime something uh, copy.ai is one that uses gpt3 that's a recent one uh, there might be a new one yeah. different one yeah so i just thought that was kind of a, a an interesting space to explore because on youtube it like goes one level further so there's like the title which is like i don't know like you actually have like 30 characters to work with but then there's the thumbnail which is uh the whole thing and there's i think it, i don't know if it's more of a an art or a science in like generating these these thumbnails but i would be curious uh, your take on like a service that would crawl popular YouTube videos and like either detect like patterns to be able to like generate templates or like show you sort of, uh, you know, the elements that are, that are working. Yeah. Cause you can see this. If you look, if you ever look at like the, there's like the fire tab or whatever, that's like the trending videos. And it's like all these, it's all these weird celebrities that you have never heard of that have suddenly like more audience than most cable, uh, news channels or, or whatever. And you can sometimes, if you if you look at that page, like scroll down and you'll find like, there's three people that are all doing like basically the same video with like a very similar thumbnail. Um, so hot take. Yeah. Um, so yeah, I, I definitely think it's interesting. It, it's a way to, so people always complain about the YouTube algorithm um, be ever changing and stuff. So this would be kind of a way to automatically stay on top of, you know, how that algorithm is working. Um, so that's interesting. It's a little like, um, I sort of despise some of those videos, you know, <laughs> so it's like, uh, uh, sort of feeding the, it's like, you know, I, I can basically, you know, for, for a thumbnail, if you, you know, put a scantily clad woman or man on the front of it, you probably get the most clicks. Uh, and then apart from yeah. that, maybe like, you know, so, but it would be really interesting to see other than, other than that, what, um, what would return views, um, especially if you could, could start suggesting things. So like if you had, for example, like all of the brand stuff uploaded for a YouTube thumbnail, 
Um, and then you could auto-generate, like, you know, here's 10 th thumbnails. We think they'll do pretty well. You know, pick pick your favorite or something. Um, that's sort of like, so uh, it's definitely what people kind of already do. There are tools that let you easily create, like, YouTube thumbnails or Facebook posts or Twitter, uh, you know, social cards or whatever. Um, so, yeah, if you added the element of, like, also, and we think this will do well, uh, I think that's definitely super valuable. Um, it is a little bit like... Uh, yeah, feeding the algorithm, you know, it's like self-reinforcing or something. Yeah. Um, but that's interesting. That, that, I think I think know. my I think my views have changed on that a little bit. Like I, I think I was definitely like, yeah, like this is probably like bad. But um, I, f I forget who it was, but I was watching some some video that was like about the the meta aspect of like you know a YouTube video about making content on YouTube, and um, it was kind of like, yeah, like you you have to clickbait, but like the video has to be good too right. otherwise like people won't watch and then uh so it's kind of like i don't know for better or worse it's like the table stakes are like you have to make something exciting and then you have to have like good content to to back it up so yeah obviously there's probably like you know those like weird uh ads at the bottom of like web page that's like you won't believe what yeah. this celebrity looks like now uh, and you know you always go to those sites and then are disappointed when it's like a 75 uh, a slide slideshow that never actually shows you uh, what you wanted. Yeah. I don't know. There's probably like some gray area where you could sort of like ethically clickbait, um, and I think it's it's kind of interesting. It, it's just like how do you how do you um, take something that's so unstructured that is like this, like you said, kind of this black box algorithm, and like is there anything you can do to sort of reverse engineer what might be uh, what might be successful? Yeah. It's also, uh, titles are an interesting one too, because, um, I've definitely watched some videos just because of the title and then like, oh, this is a bad uh, video. But then I've also watched really good videos that had like a bad title, but I was like invested in yeah. that particular YouTuber or whatever. Um, and so, yeah, for, for that, it, you know, it would have been a lot better to, to have a title that probably would have done better. Um, it's also, so Christian and I sort of talked about a similar idea, which is, uh, YouTube has this thing now where you can put timestamps in your description and then it appears like on the right hand side, like chapter markers. Um, mm -hmm. And we thought it'd be really cool if you could automatically create those. Um, and then like after you automatically create them, then you can also slice up the video in like, you know, one to two minute increments. And then people use that yeah. as like their, uh, like on Twitter or whatever, like a video thing. Um, so this is all kind of like, I could see a tool that sort of does all that. It's like you upload your hour long video, uh, it slices it up for you. It suggests you know, thumbnails, it suggests titles. Uh, it says, here are your different tweets. Uh, just click, you know, schedule tweet or whatever. Um, mm -hmm. yeah, I, I think that would do super well as a tool, uh, if you could crack all those nuts. Yeah. Yeah. The, the thing that I think about with that is like, you have to like thread the needle a little bit, I think, because someone that is successful enough to sort of need that, like, you know, to justify like, oh, I need to pay like a hundred dollars a month for this, this app or whatever. There's like this, there's kind of this like low end market of people that you basically are just hiring video editors. So like lots of, lots of uh, Twitch streamers sort of do this, right? So like they'll stream for eight hours and then they pay somebody like, uh, you know, the equivalent of, you know, $10 an hour or whatever to like be their video editor. And so they just say like, all right, well, you watched, you watched this four hours, like cut out like a 20 minute segment of it and then like do all the analytics. And even I think some of, some of the times the arrangement is more like, oh yeah, you run the YouTube channel and like you get like 20% of the ad revenue, right? you know, in exchange for like, you, 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 you know, you get to be the official content person. So it's like when you're, when you're super successful like that, you almost can, you can either have people on staff that are sort of doing that and they're like the best at it, or you can sort of pay these, these, you know, people and you get to kind of like the, the geo arbitrage, I'm sure of like, you know, somebody in not not in the U.S. is is you know can can you know edit videos for two dollars an hour or whatever and it's a great a great job for them that they can you know do remotely and work five hours a week or whatever. So I don't know. I think you'd have to like you'd have to strike the right balance. And then if you get super successful, like then you have like you know your like MCN and you have a team of people that are that are handling all that for you. So you don't want to be in there fiddling with with that software. Uh, so maybe maybe that's like actually the the market is like you try to sell it to both of those groups, like people that are video editors, uh, or people that work at big agencies. I don't know. Yeah. Yeah. That's, um, so there was someone who went on the run with it podcast, 
who talked about like this clipping idea. So clipping for YouTube. And she sort of said the same thing. She said, you need people who are successful enough where they're willing to pay some money in order to get it done, but not successful yeah. enough where they already have someone doing it, which is once you get successful enough, you have a VA or something that just does it for you. Um, yeah. yeah. And at that point it's like, you know, maybe they could save a few hours like using the software, but it's, it's like you're, you're, you're a few levels removed from like, Oh yeah. Like this is so helpful for you. Uh, you know, uh, managing your YouTube channel. It's like, well, that's what my YouTube channel manager does. Right. Right. Exactly. Um, so yeah, I think you have to catch them, catch them before they get that popular. Um, yeah. Cool. Um, did you want to talk about boring rails? Some we have, uh, I don't know, 15 minutes left or so. Oh, sure. Uh, it's kind of related to that, I guess, but I've, I've been wondering if you have any hot takes on, um, why is there not a static site tool template or whatever that is like specifically optimized for developer blogs because it's only developers uh, that really actually use these things. I mean, I guess there's like marketing, you know, tech tech people at marketing agencies that like, you know, sort of, uh, I think it's like kind of swindling uh, people to like, yeah, we're going to use like this Next.js Gatsby site to, uh, to build your, you know, your like e-commerce uh, uh, or your company website or whatever. But like, I'd say that probably 90% of people that use static site generators are like developers that are making either like yeah. a blog or a documentation site for their project. And maybe I just don't know the right one, but like I've yet to find like a good one that has like great, like syntax highlighting. Um, one of the things I've been trying to do recently in the boring rails blog is like, if I have a blog post about some code and I want to like highlight specific lines in the code block, um, like none of that is sort of supported in, in Markdown. I mean, Markdown can do like, you know, code blocks and a lot of the tools will have, you know, syntax highlighting, or you can like drop this magical CSS file that does some bizarre format that, you know, syntax highlights the code, but it's like, oh, well, I want to like highlight this one line. And suddenly it's like, well, you have to like write your own custom plugin or like add some JavaScript thing. And I don't know, it, it just feels like uh, for the amount of people that write static sites that have code blogs, this would be uh, something that is, is way better. Or everyone is like, yep, use this, this thing. It's, 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 it's weird to me that like, there's uh, people that can make sites that have like VS code in JavaScript in the web page, like a full text editor. But then uh, we haven't sort of, at least that I know of, uh, like ported that over into like the display of source code. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, that's tricky. Um, so what do you use now for your site? So I use um, Jekyll okay. and it does the basic syntax highlighting. And then I have a little bit of JavaScript that uh, I put this like meta tag above the code block and it sort of just does a uh, like a search and then wraps that in uh, some CSS to like do the highlighting. Okay, interesting. Um, so but even that was like, that's not a built-in thing. And it's like, well, wouldn't everybody want this? Yeah. Um, so I use Jekyll too. Um, I, so I used to use actually my Chris Richard site is still on Gatsby. Um, Gatsby, I think was supposed to be that, like, I th like Gatsby was like, everyone had super high hopes for it. And now some people still really like it, but I think it got, it was at, in some ways too simple and in some ways way too complicated for its own good. Mm -hmm. um, I don't know if you use Gatsby, but it's like a GraphQL, uh, it, it allows you to tap into different sources. So like you can have, you can call an API yeah. if you want, you can also have your static, um, uh, like blog posts or whatever, you can have all this stuff and then it compiles that all into a static site. And that had really uh, good support for things like uh, code highlighting and stuff. Um, yeah, I don't know. Uh, a site that gets this uh, pretty right, I think, is dev.to, dev.to. Um, they, their markdown, their flavor of markdown has really good syntax highlighting because the whole site is, um, you know, built for developers. But yeah. I don't know. And it's open source, so uh, you could look at the source yeah. and see what so they use. But, um, yeah, I think, I think it's actually fairly similar and like it has good syntax highlighting and it's like syntax highlighting, maybe it's just like, that's as far as anybody ever goes. But like, um, one example is like, sometimes you want to like, um, display the file name of a file yeah. in your like little code snippet. Right. And, um, out of the box in Markdown, like there's no way to like annotate that this code block has this like piece of metadata. So you can't necessarily like style it differently. So you just have to like put the file name as like a code comment at the top of the file. Yeah. Right. And even things like, uh, like, oh, can I, um, can I have like a little button to like copy the source code without necessarily like copying the, the line numbers or copying the HTML? 
I don't know. Like, I, I think you're right that a lot of these static site generators sort of build themselves as like, this is like a developer friendly thing, but like, that means like, yeah, you can like connect to a GraphQL right. API and we like, you can write react components instead of markup. And it like has the world's fastest, like hot reloading. And it's like, I don't know. It's more about the, like the act of building the blog and not like what a developer, like I've yet to see a static site that is like, this is the best like output, yeah. right? And maybe it's because, like you know, that's more of like a design, uh, you know, opinion of like right. uh, it's like I need I need a static site engine like designed by a nice designer, but like built by a developer that knows how to translate. Yeah. I don't know. It, I need like the tailwind. I need like the right. tailwind static site generator or something. It actually reminds me a little of um. So there are a few uh, places. So newline.co is one. Uh, they produce. They basically make books. And they're doing a lot of online stuff now. Um, and they had to write their own, I think, uh, or they had to significantly modify something for exactly the same thing that you said. Like they wanted, well, they wanted to produce PDFs also. Um, so that's a big deal. Yeah. But they wanted like the name of the file there. They wanted to be able to highlight certain lines and stuff. Um, yeah. So, I mean, there's like a more, a more powerful syntax highlighting thing um, I can see the need for. Uh, so, yeah, if, if you're making books, you can also do. So I'm when I wrote my book, I used ASCII doc instead of Markdown because it let you do things like that. Like it had much more involved uh, syntax highlighting stuff, but I don't like I made PDFs. I don't think it made very good HTML. Yeah. And maybe, maybe it's just a case that, you know, if you want a truly great, you know, developer blog, like you have to customize it yourself, but it's, it's just always surprising to me that, uh, you know, if you ever go on someone's, uh, you know, blog and, and, like the code isn't highlighted or it doesn't have all these like bells and whistles. And then if you see somebody that has very clearly like a custom site that can like, Oh, I can like, you know, subtly pulse like the, the, the line that I deleted or removed or like, uh, you know, you can, uh, you can toggle the, the, the syntax highlighting or, um, you know, it's like a tab thing where there's two files that are related. Part of this too is in like, and then it still needs to like work in, in RSS feed and, uh, you know, all that. But, yeah, I, I'm, I'm surprised that that doesn't exist for the amount of people that build static site generators and the amount of people that use it that are basically writing a, like, development blog. Yeah. Yep. All right, cool. Got a few minutes left. Uh, anything else you want to talk about? Or uh, where can people find you online? Uh, no, that's all I got. Um, you can find me at uh, Boring Rails if you want to learn more about... Um, the boring way to build rails applications or on Twitter at underscore Swanson. Cool. All right. Well, thanks. Uh, thanks for coming out to makers.dev. All right. Yep. Thanks for having See me. Ya.